Would you please turn in your pew Bible or your own Bible, but the pew Bible is page 708, as we read Mark 11, verses 12 through 26. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree that withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. This is the word of the Lord. So we find ourselves in the second half of Mark chapter 11, on the other side of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's the day after what we call Palm Sunday, so in other words, it's Monday, and Jesus is headed out to Bethany. Mark tells us that Jesus is hungry as he begins his journey. He spots, as you heard, a fig tree and leaf, and so Jesus goes over expecting to find something to eat. Upon further inspection, however, the tree has no fruit to share. Mark tells us in an aside, I don't know if you caught it, you might have it there if you keep your Bible open, that it wasn't the season for figs. But despite this, Jesus promptly curses the tree from ever bearing fruit again. Happy Mother's Day indeed. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> at first reading, this incident comes across as harsh and capricious, seemingly out of character for Jesus. If nothing else, it's a rather odd miracle. Many scholars and lay people alike consider this to be one of the most puzzling passages involving Jesus. I mean, nowhere else in the Gospels do we have Jesus performing a damaging work. All his miracles to this point have been of the healing, restoring, even the resurrecting variety. So what's going on here? Is Jesus being unreasonable? 
I mean, if it isn't the season for figs, as Mark tells us, then what exactly did Jesus expect to find? So a little bit of background. Figs, fig trees in the Middle East, uh, actually bear two separate crops. By the end of March, around that time, these trees put forth leaves to indicate their first crop, these small knobs called pagim, or basically fruit buds. The second crop, the actual figs, would appear with new leaves in September. These first early fruit knobs were sort of the forerunner of the figs, and they grew to the size of green almonds and were eaten by passers-by. This is what Jesus is looking for. He went to the fig tree to see if it was being, what was being represented on the outside was being made good, was being delivered by the tree. But as you heard, Jesus found nothing but leaves. The tree gave the outward promise of something, but wasn't producing anything. So Jesus condemns it to never bear fruit again. This weird incident is intended to frame our understanding of what happens next in the temple. Now, as we enter into the temple, some of us might remember from our study of Leviticus last summer, maybe you weren't here, maybe you don't remember, but a little background on the temple to appreciate the scene that Jesus comes upon. The temple was the center of life in Jerusalem. It was where you went to worship. It's where you went to offer sacrifices. It's where you went to pray. And if you didn't live in Jerusalem and you made a pilgrimage because of a national holiday, the main place that you were headed to is the temple. The temple, if you uh, have never seen a picture of it before, was a series of rooms leading from the outside into all the way into the inside, the centerpiece being the most holy place, the holy of holies. Working from the outside towards that center, there were three open-air courts, the first of which was called the Great Court, later on known as the Court of the Gentiles. It's this first court, the Great Court, where anyone could visit and worship, Jew or Gentile alike. This is where Jesus' action probably took place, right at the first layer of entrance into the temple. Now, another thing about the temple you ought to know is that the family of Israel's high priest managed the whole operation of the temple. And what we need to understand is while that was something that was set up spiritually in the book of Exodus, by the time of Jesus, this has become intermixed with politics. It's not just simply a spiritual inheritance. Because you see, at the time of Jesus, the right to operate the temple was a right that had to be purchased from the Romans. So it was not necessarily the appointed priestly family, but an influential priestly family that had purchased the right to manage the operation of the temple. Another thing, when you came to the temple, and everyone did on major festivals and pilgrimages, you had to pay an annual tax, a temple tax. And the tax was one all Jews had to pay for the upkeep and maintenance of the temple. And in the book of Exodus, this is laid out, and it, was, it defines the temple tax to be about a half a shekel, or a day's wages. Now, the interesting thing is that when you came to the temple to pay homage, to worship, and have to pay that tax, the temple authorities would not allow normal coins with images to be used. Normal coins with images that more often than not were the image of the emperor, the Roman emperor, who around the time of Jesus had declared himself to be a god. So you couldn't use that kind of currency to pay the temple tax. So just like we have to exchange our currency when we travel abroad, you had to have your, your currency converted into the coinage of the temple. Pilgrims were charged about 124th of a shekel to exchange their currency. And just a brief comment here, contrary to what we often hear about this story and the operation of the temple, this particular exchange rate was not being manipulated. 
The surcharge for the exchange was preset by the temple authorities and was relatively small, only covering and fluctuating based on the devaluation of the coin due to the wearing away of silver, okay? Now, another aspect of, the, of going to the temple, you might recall this, I hope, from the study of Leviticus that we had or some knowledge of it, is that you were bringing animals for sacrifice. And to be fit for sacrifice, an animal had to be free from illness and physical defect in order to be appropriate for sacrifice to the Lord. Now, like I said, many people didn't live in Jerusalem. They were traveling to go there. So if you think about it, the longer the distance a pilgrim had to travel to get to Jerusalem, the greater the risk of their animal becoming injured and thus disqualified as a sacrifice. So as a result, most people preferred to purchase their sacrificial animal in Jerusalem, especially during the pilgrimage festivals where thousands of people, thousands of worshipers were present. Now, where you would get these sacrificial animals was for the longest time at the Mount of Olives, where Jesus prays with his disciples. At the Mount of Olives, there were four marketplaces where pilgrims could buy their ritually pure animals for sacrifice. Interesting thing, these marketplaces were not under the jurisdiction of the priesthood. They were operated by the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin uh, managed these markets. What makes this even more fascinating is that there's no evidence of commercial activity in the temple prior to the time of Jesus. For generations, the practice had been to keep worship, the act of sacrifice, as a non-commercial encounter between the people and God. The transformation of the outer courtyard into a marketplace seems to have been a recent innovation by the high priest Caiaphas. You remember Caiaphas if you remember the trial of Jesus. He goes before Caiaphas. This is a recent innovation by the high priest Caiaphas. History would suggest he made this dramatic move as a punitive means of creating competition with the traders and sellers at the Mount of Olives, as well as turning a profit for the temple. It significantly changed the environment. It significantly changed the environment. After all, in order, think about it, in order to buy an animal in the great court, you needed money, right? Well, you can't just use any money in the temple, so now currency exchange took on a whole new dimension. And prices weren't fixed. So the courtyard now became filled with endless and excited haggling. This is the scene that Jesus sees as he enters the temple. Hopefully this context helps you to appreciate what he walks into. Why, when he comes in, what he finds is far from ideal, not what his father intended. And he's not, as we heard, happy. He begins to clear the temple, driving out both the people who were buying and selling, as well as overturning the tables of the money changers. And Jesus explains, and you can imagine, everyone is just all of a sudden like, what the heck is going on? Jesus explains his actions as he's doing this by quoting two Old Testament prophets, biggies, Isaiah and Jeremiah. From Isaiah, Jesus first echoes God's vision, the intended purpose of the temple, and more broadly, of Israel. And that purpose was to be a light unto the nations, a place of prayer, a sacred, set-apart community by which all humanity could come into the Father's presence and glory. This vision of the temple being a place of prayer, not just but for, the, for the Jews, but for all nations, is not lining up with what's actually happening in the temple. A space reserved for worship has become less of a meeting place and more like a marketplace. If any Gentiles came to the temple to pray, if anyone came, there would be, they would be jostled and disrupted by the buyers and sellers. 
Financial transactions, in other words, were overshadowing prayerful interaction with the Lord. Jesus goes on from Jeremiah. Jesus borrows the description of the temple as being a den of thieves, a den of robbers. Now, that word den, den is a place of retreat. It's a hideout to escape to, oftentimes for us as humans after committing a crime. In the time of Jeremiah, when Jesus is quoting Jeremiah, in the time of Jeremiah, the people were guilty too. They were guilty in their day-to-day lives of stealing, Jeremiah says, of lying, of committing murder and adultery, of burning incense to false gods like Baal. The people, Jeremiah says, had become thieves, both in taking the gifts of God for granted and in not sharing them with those in need around them. And yet, in Jeremiah's day, the people didn't think twice about committing all these gross sins and living lives totally inconsistent with their professed beliefs. Why? Because they had access to the temple, the place where God himself was said to dwell. In other words, they believed they could hide from the true reality of their daily lives, safely protected from divine judgment because they could escape into the sanctuary of the temple. But through Jeremiah, God delivers some bad news. The bad news that the temple is not just a hideout. The bad news that the people will be judged for their sin and that the temple will be destroyed, and it is. In the time of Jesus, this is the second temple, the rebuilding of the temple. And once again, like Jeremiah, quoting him, Jesus is shaking the people out of their false sense of security. The temple has once again, perhaps even more so, become in the time of Jesus a sign, a nationalistic symbol of division of the fracturing of the faith within Israel, as well as Israel's broader withdrawal from engaging the alien, the foreigner, the stranger to the faith. Competition between the priesthood and the Sanhedrin has turned the the, the temple into an economic enterprise as well. The temple has become, can you picture it, a captive marketplace for pilgrims in Jerusalem. In the same way that for you and I, everything is more expensive at the airport, right? Right? In an airport terminal, in the same way a pilgrim could be overcharged for basic necessities in the temple. Doves, which you heard mentioned, specifically by Mark. Doves, for instance, which were allowed as a sacrifice for the poor. They didn't have much, and so this enabled them to make the sacrifices. A sacrifice for the poor, a sacrifice for lepers and women. Doves typically tripled beyond their normal price in these marketplaces. What Jesus is basically saying is regardless of who you are, buyer or seller, everyone alike is being entrenched by this disobedience to the Lord. And that is why he escorts all of them out of the first part of the temple. Now many of us have heard this story before. Maybe we can think of movies where we've seen this dramatically enacted. But I really don't want us to miss the significance of this. How jolting it is. Once again, the temple was the centerpiece of Jewish life. It was the central institution of its religious life. This is the place you went to to find the sacred in the midst of the secular. It was the central institution of its political life. The governance of the people came through the priestly hierarchy. It was the central institution of its economic life. Both material and spiritual debts were recorded and reconciled there. The building project of the temple, the day-to-day operation of the temple was the means of employment for most of the Israelites living in Jerusalem. And on the eve of a national holiday, Jesus comes strolling into the temple 
Because remember, it's the eve of the Passover. Jesus comes strolling into the temple and basically announces that the epicenter of life, as people have known it, is barren and corrupt. Imagine it's Christmas Eve and Jesus comes in and all of a sudden starts knocking down our Christmas trees and pulling down our stockings and basically is saying, this is irrelevant. This is meaningless. This has become corrupt. Maybe that's not too hard to imagine. That's what's happening. Most of our Bibles refer to this, maybe if you, if you have your Bible open with a little subheading is, we refer to this incident as Jesus' cleansing of the temple. But that's not really an accurate description of what's happening. I mean, if, if you think about it, while Jesus disrupts activity in the temple here for a while, maybe for a couple of hours, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to assume that once he leaves, it all goes back to the way that it was. It's business as usual. Jesus isn't cleansing the temple as much as he's disqualifying it. Jesus' message is blunt. Religion as practiced in the temple will no longer satisfy or feed anyone. In the same way the fig trees on the leaves, the leaves on the fig tree, excuse me, concealed the fact there was no fruit to enjoy, the magnificence of the temple, the temple and its ceremony conceals its lack of righteousness. It's all leaves but no nourishing fruit. Jesus condemned, as you heard, the fig tree to be fruitless forever. And the next morning, as the disciples go to Jerusalem again, Peter notices that the fig tree has withered already. Mark shares this with us. You may wonder why we go from Monday to Tuesday in this passage. Mark shares this with us to bookend what just happened in the temple. You see, Jesus has also just judged the fruitlessness of the temple. His temporary stoppage of the temple was his way of declaring the inevitable and permanent cessation of its operation. And if you know your history, a few years later, just as Jesus foretold, the temple was once again destroyed, burned to the ground by the Romans. Interesting thing. I don't know if you ever thought about this. Unlike the first temple, the first temple that when it was constructed, God's glory, his Shekinah glory filled the temple. And that was one of the things that Jeremiah basically said is God's glory is going to leave the temple. Unlike the first temple that was built and God's glory filled the temple. Think about this. The second building of the temple was never filled with the glory of God's presence. The second building of the temple was never filled with the glory of God's presence. That is until Jesus came to it. However, people were looking so hard at the temple, they couldn't see the reality to which the temple was pointing. Him. And if you think about it, if we think back to where we've been in Mark, it's been subtle, but Jesus has been assuming the role of the temple all the way along. Think about it. Early on, Jesus announces his ability to forgive sins, one of the major functions for the temple. Throughout his journey, Jesus heals the sick and res brings restoration of persons to community again. Again, another major purpose of the temple. Jesus speaks, we're told again and again, with authority apart from the religious leadership. His entire ministry, what I want you to see, has been building to this moment, to this series of days that we just celebrated during Holy Week, when Jesus does the last and greatest work that previously was reserved for the temple as he becomes the sacrifice. The heart of the activity of the temple was sacrifice, and Jesus becomes the sacrifice. 
One way to think about the cross and the resurrection is the cross and the resurrection is where Jesus ultimately says and demonstrates, stop looking there and start living here through me. This whole story ought to be challenging for us. This whole story ought to be challenging for us both individually as Christians this morning and collectively as the church. Story like this forces us to stop and reflect. Are our lives, is our church fruitful? Do we deliver what we claim to offer? Do we walk the talk? Or are we also failing to notice any difference between what we profess and what we practice? I mean, we say all the right things. I hear a lot of good stuff. We say all the right things. We, we know our Bibles, most of us. We have them. We bring them. We engage in the sacraments. Our community is sizable. People are coming and going here. There's lots of things happening. The signs of life would appear to be visible here at Grace. From the outside, we look healthy and thriving. But that's not the point, is it? The point is, are we producing any fruit. If Jesus showed up and made a surprise inspection, asked to take an inventory, what would we say? What could we point to? Beloved, if there's no visible, tangible, practical, sustainable fruit, then we're just playing games. We're just going through the motions. We're not delivering what we advertise. If there's no fruit, then we've turned this sanctuary, both the physical building and also the sanctuary of our community, into a den. We've turned it into a hiding place, an escape from our call as disciples. That's the the corporate thought. But what if I make it more intimate? What if I make it more personal? What about me? Where is the fruit for the kingdom in my life? Where is the fruit for the kingdom in my life? Am am I somehow, is the fruit the fact that I've been ordained? That I have the title of a pastor? That I serve a church? Because I've professed my belief in Jesus, do I let myself off the hook of wrestling with what it means to live out my faith in Christ? You know, you say it, and, and when you reflect back to me, and it's true, you all have jobs, and many people say, well, this is your job. And it is my job. It's how I support my family. How do I differentiate between my job versus the fruit? The fruit of my faith in Christ. I mean, I I, I can't just stay in my head. I can't just stay in my head content to have my convictions remain purely intellectual, a matter of what I think. Private religion and aligning yourself with Jesus, in case you don't know this, don't mix together very well. But on the other hand, I can't just feel strong emotions about Jesus, satisfied to hold on to to my passion for Jesus in my heart. Jesus' love and grace toward me is not exclusive to me. Am I hiding in the privacy of my own thoughts about Jesus? Am I retreating to the comfort of my personal feelings for Jesus and ignoring how fruitless my faith is? Do I ignore the needs of others because I'm safe in God? Do I ignore the needs of others because I'm safe in God? 
Beloved, when we convince ourselves that our relationship with Jesus is solely private and personal, we become prone to remaining stagnant. Jesus has called us into a relationship with him, to follow him, to learn from him, to not just have our thoughts and our feelings, but our practices changed by him. And one of the most fundamental practices, day-to-day aspects of our lives that Jesus desires to reshape is how we engage each other. Jesus wants us to share him with each other. Jesus seeks for us to better know and experience him through our mutual sharing of him with each other. Am I? Are we producing the fruit Jesus delights in? Trusting him, depending upon him, growing more like him, reaching out to see others coming into relationship with him? Can I, can we see the fruit of the spirit more and more Or are we just making a good show? All leaves, but no fruit. The truth is, we're always growing. We're always growing. The question is, in what direction are we growing? Discipleship is about fruit. Discipleship is about fruit. Discipleship is about growing up in Christ. And if you didn't hear it, you don't see it, let me give it to you right here. What we see in this passage, and there's other scriptures we can go to, is growth without fruit is a sign of decay. Growth without fruit is a sign of decay. A sign that we're not that we're growing up, it's a sign that we're breaking down. Growth without fruit is drawing closer to death as our life withers away. Practicing resurrection, on the other hand, is about coming to life from death. Beloved, the fruit of discipleship brings life. It brings life to us, and it brings life to those around us. Are we fruitful disciples, bringing life? Or are we Christian consumers, buying and selling and trading in death? It's a heavy question, but it's a serious one. It's an important one. Are we fruitful disciples or are we just Christian consumers? How do we ensure that we're growing up rather than breaking down and wasting away? I don't know if you caught it, but you know, Mark tells us that when Jesus curses the fig tree, the disciples hear this and they're not stupid. They go with him to the temple. They see what happens. And then when they get up the next day and they're going, Peter notices and he's speaking for the rest of the group that that fig tree that you cursed is now dead. And they could put two and two together. They know that this is about that. And think about that. They've been raised all their lives. The very center of what life is about, where it all happens, where it all comes together is the temple. And Jesus has basically just said, dead. Done. And so Peter, when he goes, um, uh, that tree is dead. What does that mean? He's freaking out. He's freaking out because life as he knows it is gone. How do we know? How do we know we're growing up? Many of us have grown up in the church all of our lives. Some of us have gone around to different churches. We've been a part of this Christian thing. How do we know we're growing up rather than breaking down and wasting away? Jesus gives us, as he gives Peter and the disciples, the answer. You have it there in your Bible. He says, have faith in God. 
perhaps better translated, hold on to the faithfulness of God. I want to say that again. Better translated, hold on to the faithfulness of God. This is an important distinction that I'm making. When Jesus talks after this about saying to the mountain and not doubting in our hearts and believing it will be done, he's not saying it's about us. And this passage has been pulled out and this has been given a, given a clunky, funky theology about prayer and a clunky, funky theology about faith. Please, if you don't have your Bible open, look at it. Jesus, if you look at the whole, not just the sentence, he's not talking about us. It's not about the strength of our will. It's not about the strength of our faith. What Jesus, is, Jesus promises is grounded in God's faithfulness, his dependability and reliability, rather than our ability to be faithful. Bearing fruit is not about our ability to do things for God. Hear that. Bearing fruit is not about our ability to do things for God. Bearing fruit is about God's reliability to do things through us. Elsewhere, you remember in John, Jesus puts it this way. Abide in me. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. Here, Jesus expresses it like this. Don't be like the fig tree. Have the faith of God. Have faith in me. Have my faith. Have my faith. And if you got your Bible open, if we really pay close attention to what Jesus is telling us here, we abide, we share in the faith of Jesus fundamentally through prayer. Fruit bearing begins and ends in the soil of prayer. Prayer, our conversation with, our listening to, our attentiveness and participation in the life of God is the seedbed for a fruitful harvest in our lives. So how's our prayer life? How's our prayer life? How's our prayer life? If we're like most people, we struggle with prayer. We're not good at it. We don't know how to do it well. We're not comfortable with doing it. Beloved, many of us struggle with prayer because we still hold on to prayer as being fundamentally about what we do. But it's not. Prayer is about being rather than doing. It's not about being good at it. It's not about doing it well. It's not even about being comfortable doing it. Prayer is about being, engaging the time, the space, the opportunity to be in God's presence, to be in communion with God. And one of the reasons we show up at least once a week on Sunday for an hour, hour and 15, hour and a half, is to practice being in the presence of God. But some of you suck at this, because you don't be, you're still doing for the time that you're here. And, and I don't mean doing by serving and helping out. I mean doing. You're sitting there and you can't just be. You have to do something. This is just the, the starting point of, of a whole reorientation of not doing but being. And for many of us where we get fidgety, fidgety and is it over yet? What time is it? Oh my gosh, I got things to do. You're addicted to doing. Let God teach you how to just be. I almost sometimes hate that clock on the wall. You can't see it, but I do. And it gets bigger and bigger as the time gets longer and longer. 
and I see you look at your phones or at your watch, you're not subtle. (laughs) Prayer is about being. You ever think about this? Unlike every other relationship in our lives, we don't need to make an appointment with God. We don't need to wait our turn. We don't have to get God's attention, all doing. We just have to settle down and be with him. Many of us, again, because of this, not seeing prayer as doing rather than being, we got it all backwards. Prayer is not about our manipulation of God. Prayer is not about imposing our will on God. It's opening our lives to God's will. Prayer is not about changing God's will. It's about releasing God's will into our lives. And yet, I talk to many of us, and if we pray at all, most of us, this is the shape of our prayers. Our prayers are bargaining and negotiating and leveraging with God. And I want you to hear something, and it's going to sting a little bit, but please understand, it's not saying to stop. It's just saying to be rather than do. If your prayer life is fundamentally bargaining, negotiating, or leveraging with God, you're no different than the money changers and the buyers and sellers in the temple. Because you are turning your relationship with God into an economic transaction. You have nothing to offer. You have nothing to bargain with. You have nothing to negotiate with. You have no leverage. And the beautiful thing is, is God asks nothing of you other than just to receive what he desires to give you. And all that means is you have to let go of what you're holding on to. Prayer is not about pulling God down to us. It's about us being pulled into God's presence. Prayer, in other words, is about our submission to God. It's our willingness to listen, to trust, and to learn from our our Father. That means that prayer is not rooted in the strength of our convictions. It's rooted in the quiet confidence of the power and goodness of God. We just have to settle down and be with our Father. So how's our prayer life? Some of us, prayer is not a struggle. Some of us have gotten into that groove. We can pray, but let me push a little bit further. If we're praying as we, maybe this reorientation helps us to better enter into this soil of prayer. What are we praying? What is the size and scope of our prayers? You see, if our prayers derive from what we believe we can do, If our prayers derive from what we believe is humanly possible, please hear this, our prayers are going to be limited. Because again, it's about us. But if our prayers, as Jesus says here, are rooted in what God promises to do, if our prayers are rooted as the Psalms teach us in our remembrance of God's faithfulness, then hear this, our prayers have no limit. All things, the scriptures declare, are possible with God. In fact, even more than we can imagine or hope for. What are the size and scope of our prayers? Are we, are our prayers safe? Are your prayers safe? Are our prayers self-serving? Are our prayers comfortable? Or are we anticipating the moving of mountains? Are we anticipating the parting of waters? Are we anticipating the collapsing of walls? Are we anticipating the multiplication of bread and fishes? Are we anticipating the resurrection of the dead? 
How's our prayer life? We ought to notice also that Jesus grounds, and this is the the second most important part, grounds the foundation of our prayers in forgiveness. And this in and of itself is a reorientation for many of us when it comes to prayer. Jesus grounds the foundation of our prayers in forgiveness. The starting point, you have him, the words that he said there, the starting point of our conversation, of our prayers, of our being in God is recognizing we have been forgiven. Truly forgiven. We can't really trust God. We can't really be in his faithfulness if we refuse to forgive ourselves. To accept we can be and we have been forgiven. Understand, and I know that this is hard, there are many of us who struggle with forgiving ourselves, but if you're not forgiving yourself, you are basically saying that God is not trustworthy. That God is not faithful. You are basically saying you know better than God. That seems funky because you're being really hard on yourself. It doesn't seem like that's what you're doing, but that's what you're doing. You're basically saying, you know, God, I appreciate that you say it, but you know what? I just seem to have a little more knowledge than you. I have a little more authority than you, and I haven't decided to let myself off the hook for that yet. Understand that that suddenly creates a major obstacle. It creates a major stunting of our growth. What fruit can come out of our lives if on the most basic of things that God says we are forgiven and we say, I don't think so, what fruit can come from that? That we can pray at all, that we can pray at all, is due to the faithfulness, the assurance of God's forgiveness. Do you ever think about that? That we can pray at all is due to the faithfulness, the assurance of God's forgiveness. Maybe that's why if your prayer life is bargaining, negotiating, and leveraging, that's maybe that's why your orientation is you still think you have to work out your forgiveness with God. But when you understand that you have been truly forgiven with God, it changes the dynamic of the conversation. Our prayers have to derive out of that confidence of God's faithfulness to forgive us. But you'll notice what Jesus also says. That confidence, the evidence of resting in the faithfulness of God is, begins by receiving God's forgiveness, but it's evidenced by the expression of our practice of forgiveness towards others. Wow, if it was hard before, we've just like taken a major incline up. I realize this morning as I look at many of you that this is a hard truth for many of us to embrace because many of us here this morning are in the midst of painful situations. And I say this with all empathy, with all respect. Some of us are sitting here right now and we're bearing the wounds of terrible things that have been done or are being done to us that are wrong. We have pent up anger. We are haunted by fear. We are convinced that our hatred Our defensiveness is our only power. It's our only protection. But beloved, please hear this. The truth is, any lack of forgiveness in our lives impairs our prayer life, our relationship with God. Because basically, in our unforgiveness towards others, we are standing in opposition to God. If we're not seeing fruit, and many people say that, they don't feel, see fruit in their lives. If we're not seeing fruit in our life out of our relationship with Christ, more often than not, I've found pastorally, it's due to one root cause, unforgiveness. On the surface, our prayers may be leafy. 
and seemingly vibrant. But ultimately, whatever we're holding on to in terms of not being willing to forgive stunts our growth. Our prayers and our discipleship become hollow, empty, and ineffective because there's this significant part of ourselves disengaged from the relationship, disengaged from our trust in God. Our prayers, understand what's happening here. Understand what our faith is grounded in. Our prayers as a people are no longer rooted in a temple made by human hands. Our prayers are no longer tied to the sacrifices we bring to the altar of the temple. Through the death and resurrection of Christ, we have received forgiveness in Christ, and therefore Jesus has become the temple, the place where God meets us. Jesus has become the house of prayer for all the nations, where people from every tribe are coming to be reconciled with God through the sacrifice of the cross. In other words, please hear this, Forgiveness, forgiveness is the defining center of our relationship with God. Many of us have come into this relationship so that we could be saved by Jesus. Do you want to get saved? I've been saved by Christ. Amen. But hear this. We aren't saved in order to be forgiven. We are forgiven in order to be saved. Salvation doesn't happen without Forgiveness. We don't experience the empty tomb. Life beyond death. Unless, unless we first experience the cross. And the cross works both ways. We are forgiven so that we can forgive ourselves and each other. In other words, the first and greatest fruit, the first and greatest fruit that comes from God's faithfulness is forgiveness. If we deny that first fruit, that forgiveness in any way, then our experience of the rest of the Lord's harvest in our lives will be diminished. But on the other hand, on the other hand, when our prayer life begins out of the forgiveness we have received in Christ, we can pray with confidence because we know our prayers are part of the prayers that Jesus prays to the Father. And nothing is impossible with God. Praying out of the assurance of forgiveness of us, we can either extend that very same forgiveness to each other. How's your prayer life? What's the center of your prayer life? Where does it emerge from? From your doing or from your being? And if you truly want to be in Christ, the starting place for that prayer life, the starting place for that soil to be enriched is to receive and to impart the forgiveness that God has given us. The fruit comes out of the forgiveness. How's your prayer life? Where are you just being with Jesus? Sitting, standing, walking, hiking, reflecting to the point of being overwhelmed by the fact that you have been forgiven in Christ. When's the last time you really let that sink in? You gotta let it sink in. You gotta let it break your heart. We pray the prayer of confession week in and week out. It's a central part of our worship because we forget. We forget. And the other thing is, we don't just forget that we've been forgiven. We forget the stuff we need to be forgiven for. Our list is too small. And more than this, we try, even in the forgiveness of God, 
to negotiate and leverage and bargain. Like I said last week, if you were here, why do we do a corporate prayer of confession? Many of you have pushed back, and I'm glad. Good, ask. I don't like these written confessions. I want to just pray on my own my prayer of confession because you got stuff up there that I'm not guilty of. I don't want to pray that. I didn't do that. That's not my sin. Late breaking newsflash. If you've been baptized, if you're part of the family of God, again, I said it last week, but it bears repeating. Your sin is my sin. My sin is your sin. Jesus kicks out the buyers and sellers alike in the temple. Do you think that there were people there that were more or less guilty in our judgment? But Jesus says, you're all covered in it. You're covered in what's going on here. Get out. Your sin is my sin. I don't like it. I wish you'd clean up your act. And I'm sure you're looking at me and asking the same thing. But that's how it is. And when we understand that, that's what makes us one when we come to this table. If we want to do it the other way, then we ought to color code this thing and the people who have more sin to deal with will come up first and then the second level and then the third and then those people who are really, really good at the end, they'll come up and get what's left over. But we all come up together. We all come up the same way because your sin is my sin. My sin is your sin. How's our prayer life? Where are the mountains? Where are the mountains in our relationships? Where are the mountains this morning in your relationships? Where are the places where extending forgiveness seems too great, too impossible of a summit to scale? We've all got mountains in our lives. They get bigger and bigger as time goes on. Where are the mountains in your relationships? The places where extending forgiveness seems too great too impossible of a summit to scale. Beloved, do we believe those mountains can be moved? Do we want to taste the fruit that's on the other side of that horizon? Do we want to taste that fruit? We started with figs, and I just want to end with vines, specifically the vine. You see, when we become disconnected from the world, the community around us and its needs, we wither and die. We wither up and die because we've disconnected ourselves from the vine, Jesus. Still, within the church, forget outside the church, people say all the time, I just don't feel like I experience the living presence of Christ. I really have never heard from Jesus. I've never encountered him. Other than the words on the page, I have no living sense of Jesus in my life. And to the person outside the church, to the person inside the church, the answer is always the same. Jesus is always, and I do not hesitate to say always, Jesus is always found. Jesus is always working. Jesus is always tilling the soil, planting seeds, nurturing fruit in the places of deepest need and loss. Do we want to engage in our own lives and in the community around us, the places of deepest need and lost? Do we want to see fruit as disciples or do we just want to consume? Consume goods and services, cheap grace, love, fluffy love, mystical, superstitious faith. Which do we want? Just leaves or fruit? To be in Christ means to abide in God's presence. 
To be in Christ means to bear the fruit of good works that Paul writes our Father has prepared for us in advance through Jesus. Having faith and forgiving come from being connected to Jesus. Together in Christ, we are built as a church into a house of prayer for all people as we follow Jesus by practicing resurrection, by turning over the tables and rolling away the stones in those public spaces where access to the love, forgiveness, and truth of Christ has been obscured or cut off by unrighteousness and injustice. You see, through Jesus, we become the branches The branches offering the fruit of the vine, serving in faith and extending forgiveness to others. That's God's vision, not just for the temple, but for his body. I don't know about you, but I'm done with leaves. I'm done with looking good. I want to taste the fruit of the kingdom. I want to experience it. I want to share it. That's why we're here. I don't want to play games. I don't want to go through the motions. I want to actually wrestle in the dirt and let the Lord continue to till the soil of our lives together and continue to bring forth these things that he promises, these things that he calls out that are even bigger than what I can imagine or even think to ask for. And if you're here, if God's called you here, I believe he's called you here because you deep, deep, deep in your soul, beyond your thoughts and your feelings, want the same thing. How's your prayer life? Where are your mountains? Where's the fruit? Amen.